You're listening to episode 50 of In Film We Trust. I'm Wayne. I'm Liam. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film, from the obscure to the mainstream. And now, on with the show. It's the 1960s, one of the most important decades in modern history, a period of sweeping social, societal and cultural change. This fraction of history gave us The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, Color Television, the Apollo Space Program, the Women's Liberation Movement and countless other zeitgeist-defining moments and entities. The beating heart of the UK is referred to as Swinging London and its inhabitants have spent the last few years living it up their souls brimming with optimism and unbridled joy. But not everyone is having such a groovy time. In a small, squalid flat in Camden Town live two struggling actors, subsisting on whatever substances, legal or not, they can get their hands on. In desperate need of a break, they head out to the English countryside to relax and rejuvenate. Will they find peace and recovery, or will they come to discover that they've simply traded one kind of misery for another? It's our 50th episode, everyone, so sit back, pour yourself a glass of wine, or 12, and let's delve headfirst into one of the UK's finest cult classics. Chin chin. The Big 50, half a century. We are now officially quincuquagerians. Now that is a word I never thought I'd be learning today. It is also a word I learned today, and you know, it's between 50 and 60. We have officially entered those years, and I'm not saying that word again, because it was hard enough saying it the first time. No, I, I, I see what you mean. When you said that word to me, I actually thought you'd made it up. You said this quinquagenarian, I thought, what, what even is that? That sounds like a fancy plant. It's like a Latin name for a common garden plant. If we were a TV show, mm-hmm. our 50th episode, we would be going back to the highlight reel of the best moments of our 49-episode catalogue. But we are not satisfied with that. We are bringing a new episode for number 50. And not only a new episode, a collective favourite, a Mm. joyous episode for us. We love this film. It's British. I don't know if that makes it any important. We started the podcast with a British film. We started this year with a British film. And our 50th is a British film also. I think it's, it's a nice little pattern there because, you know, within this world of film, Hollywood does have a monopoly, especially in the English speaking world and it's kind of nice to delve into something a little different for an international audience specifically because at this point we have a sizable american audience Mm -hmm. and maybe we're introducing this film to them maybe we're going to you know make them re-watch it if they've never seen it for years or maybe they also love it and love the britishness of it love the craziness of it love the specific humor of it well i hope so because coming up to episode 50 this was my turn in this episode to choose the film you'd have to boast Uh, okay and i thought right what i'm going to choose for this and with neil and i was a film that we had spoken about you even said you're maybe going to choose it and i thought look episode 50 Big thing for us will be quinquagenarians. I need to stop saying that word. So I thought we're, we're, we're getting to that anniversary. So yeah, let's pick something like that. You said about British films. We talked about how nice it is to do films that are a bit closer to home. Yeah. Because you can talk about lots of Hollywood films. In fact, a lot of people, I think, use the term Hollywood as a synonym for movie. Like a movie is not from the UK. It's right. not Australian. Right. It's not Bollywood. Hollywood is just movies. So doing one that's a little close to home. And like you say, definitely a personal favourite of ours. A movie I've 
loved for well over a decade at this point. And we're a tiny little island at the end of the day. Yeah. We, we have to proliferate our art form, <laughs> proliferate our greatest films, and from personal experience from personal attitudes this is probably within my definitely top 10 british films of all time i would definitely go along with that i think for a lot of people it's very much the same thing i think for a lot of people myself included this is what i think of when i think of a cult film that very underground indie film a film that almost kind of straddles the indie and the mainstream as well how it it's existing almost a gray area between it because when i was reading about this film one quote i liked is someone said this film is popular enough. It has enough mass appeal to be popular, but it's also kind of obscure enough for people who are fans of it, like uh, yourself and I, to feel like we're in a kind of exclusive club. Do I have a name if I'm the I? (laughs) (laughs) No, you are Marwood. Yes. Bruce Robinson, director of this film, the helmer of this film, the writer of this film, everything of this film. 1987, set in 69. Yes. Famously made by Handmade Films, George Harrison of the Beatles production company. I love that. Even Ringo is a credit on this film. Yeah, and it's not like the first time he did this either because he famously was a massive Monty Python yeah. fan and I think was responsible for a lot of funding of, I think it was, Life of Brian. Life of Brian. Because I, in yeah. fact, I might be wrong here, but I think Handmade Films was actually created around about that time specifically to fund that. And that's what George Harrison into the, the movie production business. And I, was it George Harrison? There was another Beatle. Or there was an association between the Beatles and Jodorowsky. Mm. I think John Lennon was such a huge fan. I think it was El Topo, which led on to a, a relationship of sorts. So the Beatles, you know, they, they were in, obviously, famously, Help. Yeah. A Hard Day's Night. They've been in the film world, much akin to a lot of pop stars of today who kind of put their foot or dip their foot into the film world. And very successful. And... Who's to know? Maybe if it wasn't for the Beatles, we maybe not wouldn't have with Neil and I. Possibly. It, it's an interesting crossover between the world of music and the world of films, because you think Monty Python, Pink Floyd were big fans as well. Pink yeah. Floyd, famously, they used to stop studio sessions to watch episodes of Monty Python, so who's to say they wouldn't have done it as well? Who's to say they wouldn't have created some company to film, uh, to finance movies made by their favourite filmmakers? And did you know, since we're on the topic of music, it fits into this part, this film uses, I think it's two songs from Jimi Hendrix, Yes. Which led to Jimi Hendrix's family taking greater control over his estate so they could say, look, we don't want that in that film, for example. It's the association with Jimi Hendrix and the drug culture, which obviously, tragically, is what ended Jimi Hendrix's life and was obviously very rampant throughout the 60s. It's one of the things that the decade is kind of notorious for but the fact that Jimi Hendrix is in this film there's an interesting kind of symmetry with that with his songs we'll get to it later yep, on yep. but I took it away and thought no we're not going to have Jimmy's songs associated with this any longer we want to put him in like a more positive light that he should be shown in I think uh, Hendrix would like to be associated with a drug culture myself <laughs> well I'd like I'd like to be associated with Whitlin and I you can have any sense I thought you were going to say the drug culture, <laughs> drug culture no. <laughs> but another interesting parallel I noticed between movies and uh, music this film was popular with actors, particularly struggling actors. And it was popular with actors in the same way that This Is Spinal Tap was popular with musicians. Was it? Because you heard all the stories. I can't remember which band it was. I think it was Van Halen. Did they turn up to 11? (laughs) (laughs) Everyone needs to be turned up to 11. But I think it was Van Halen were watching Spinal Tap. Fantastic film. One of my favourite comedies. 
didn't laugh a single time. And afterwards, they were like, how did they make a film about us? So how they'd so perfectly captured it. I think even like Aerosmith watched it and felt very uncomfortable. So did Ozzy Osbourne because it was like, it was their life on the screen. They couldn't laugh at it. So I see this. Yeah. So I see this film resonating with so many actors, not just actors, students as well. Hugely popular among students. And that is when I first seen it. We've spoken about seeing the right film film at the right time. I watched this film while I was at university. I think for me, living in student accommodation, living in flats, which could be occasionally be a bit messy, be a bit yeah, grimy, yeah. I think a lot of the film did speak to me on that kind of personal level because it was an experience I was going through at the time. I beat you. T- <laughs> teenage years. Teenage years, teenage you watched years, it? way before you did. I, I was late about, teenage years. I told you about my warped youth. So <laughs> yeah. I, I got round to these quite early on. I think it's common knowledge. So do you remember when you first seen it, like your Ooh, first impressions? I can't remember. I did buy the DVD. So this was obviously post VHS. Yeah, yeah. Made a huge impression. Mm. Look, when you are from a certain country, right? Let's put this out there. You kind of get sick of your own repertoire in a sense. With Nail Nye sticks out. It is so different, yet very British at the same time. It's one of those weird juxtapositions that you can't quite explain. It kind of revels in its Britishness, yet it skewers it in a way and makes it cool. Kind of a condemnation of everything around and not necessarily a celebration of what's going on there. And I'm glad you mentioned the DVD as well. Anyone who's listened to this, please go and comment. Did you have this experience? You know how DVDs have chapters? Yeah. So maybe a film will have like 15 chapters maybe. This DVD I had had one. So if you were at a certain part of the film and you thought, I want to skip to another part, the film just ended. It went back to the main menu and there wasn't even any special features. It was the least special DVD I've ever had. So you literally had to fast forward it. So we're we're pretty much going back to VHS days. Yeah, pretty much, yes. That kind of frustration of VHS, like fast forwarding, ooh, can I get it to the right point? But there was always a delay with VHS when you hit play again. And it kind of went, and then it, then it went back to it. But look, cult <laughs> films, you mentioned cult films. Another cult film, Big Lebowski. Oh, yes. When there's certain films that become cult, the director gets a certain renown. For example, Big Lebowski, the Coen brothers, of course, they have established themselves in many other films. It's yes. not just Big Lebowski they're known for. But for this film, Bruce Robinson, quite of a name that is kind of slips by. Mm-hmm. He's not necessarily a household name. But he got a start in acting. He was an actor himself. Famously in Franco Zeffirelli's 1968 adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, Mm -hmm. where he played Ben Volio. Mm. That was a huge success. A massive, massive film of its time. Now, we've delved into the horror world a lot. Mm -hmm. One of our collective favourite horrors, Black Christmas. Now, he was a tie-in you would have never thought. What ties in Black Christmas with Romeo and Juliet, which therefore ties in with our director, Bruce Robinson... Romeo and Juliet. Juliet in that film was played by Olivia Hussey, who starred in Black Christmas. Oh, really? Yeah. So in this six degrees of separation ways, (laughs) we've gone back to Black Christmas again. Interesting crossover. I think Bruce Robinson in the 80s, because he was a struggling actor back in the 60s, in the the time period, and this obviously informed a lot of the film. He wasn't totally new. This was his first directing, but he did write in 1984 the screenplay for The Killing Fields, based on on the Cambodian genocide. I really liked Killing Fields. Great film. Obviously, at that point, he wouldn't have actually been trusted maybe to be directing a film himself. No, but he was nominated for a screenwriting Oscar and he did win the BAFTA that year for The Killing Fields. And I guess that's what set him on the path to, you know, I've got this nomination, I've got a little bit of notoriety He's got some clout. I've got a little bit of clout. So that kind of situation where like Paul Thomas Anderson did with Magnolia, thought if I'm going to tell a personal story, I'm going to tell it now while I have the chance. Because this was originally written as a novel, which apparently sold at auction for more than like £8,000 just about seven years 
years ago. An unpublished novel, mm-hmm. never never was produced, and it had a far, far darker end, in which we'll, we'll like, tit for tat towards the end of this. And it was brought to the attention of uh, a man called Mordecai Schreiber. Does that not sound like a Bond villain? I'm pretty sure Mordecai, Mordecai Schreiber was some kind of Bond villain. Johnny Depp was in a film called Mordecai. He was in Mordecai. And what else? Critically panned film, is it not? And Bruce Robinson did direct the 2011 film, The Rum Diary. The Rum Diary. Not got around to watching that. I read the book. I liked it. Not as much as Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. No, but well, I did the, like Rum the Rum Diary. Diary was... It was essentially an unpublished novel as well. Johnny Depp found it in a box hidden away, I'm pretty sure. Brought it out. He said, look, let's, let's release this. Eventually, they made the film now, mm. overshadowing Bruce Robinson, who was Johnny Depp's first pick for that film, because Johnny Depp produced the film, The Rum yeah. Diary, because Johnny Depp's a huge with Nail and I fan. Mm. It's kind of overshadowed by the blossoming romance in that film, stars Amber Heard, Amber Heard, Johnny Depp. So that's kind of overtaken Bruce Robinson's role. But yeah. interestingly, <laughs> interestingly, this film, with mm-hmm. Nail and I, soaked in alcohol. <laughs> right so, enough. quite apropos, The Rum Diary he would make. Another mm-hmm. soaked in alcohol film. Now, after making With Nail Night, there was a period. There was a period where he abstained from alcohol for the most part, Bruce Robinson. Yeah. When he was making The Rum Diary, when he was writing The Rum Diary, now here's an itinerary. Five bottles of red wine he drank per day. And I've got a quote from him about this, right? He says, The day red wine ever got in the way of my writing, I would stop drinking, but it is the oil of what I do. Mm. And that kind of goes into that when we were discussing Miss 45, Zoe Lunt, her, her affection. And it was an affection for heroin mm. and how it was kind of this creative solace. And I think that's in many ways the same way Bruce Robinson sees alcohol. It's this lubrication for the mind. I think there is also uh, a very close association between writing and drinking. Hemingway? Like some of the biggest, your Hemingways, your Falconers, all these people were big drinkers. There was one Irish writer, he quipped, I'm a drinker with a writing problem. <laughs> it really does highlight this. And it's interesting because he's the drunken guy who's writing this film about... Drunks. About, about drunks, basically, where the lead star of the film is allergic to alcohol, or at least has a ser- serious aversion to alcohol. Because when you were mentioning to me drinking five bottles of wine on set, I'd assume that was something Richard e. Grant was doing to stay in character, but no, he avoided it as much as he could. He has an intolerance <laughs> of alcohol due mm. to no enzyme, enzymes to metabolise it. Now you're thinking, we have the straight guy, the teetotaler, Richard E. Grant. We, he's playing this drunk. Now, he's maybe acting, he's maybe been studying some drunks on the streets, gone to some wet houses, for example, Mm. but no, Bruce Robinson, (laughs) Bruce Robinson made him drink a bottle of champagne and half a bottle of vodka in one single night to experience drunkenness. But if I could elaborate on that red wine quote, yeah. when he said that to the journalist, the journalist said, was this also true when he was writing with Nail, this alcohol consumption? And he said, oh, absolutely. 1,000% Vivian, who's the inspiration for Richard E. Grant's character, and I would go around the bins in Camden and Kentish Town, collecting used Guinness bottles worth four pence each. When we had two suitcases full, we'd go to the nearest off-license, where we'd swap then for an 11 and 6 bottle of Greek plonk, (laughs) wine, or some other filthy shit. Then back to the flat where we'd drink and discuss and fall asleep, then wake up and go round the bins again. Mm. It was madness. I bet it was bloody madness. I think so. And it's funny because Vivian, a guy called Vivian McCarroll, who was actually a flatmate of uh, Bruce Robinson's, yep. he was the inspiration for Wave Nail. Watching the film, I did think, this is clearly somebody that Bruce Robinson has known at one point. Bruce Robinson himself described this guy, Vivian McCarroll. He said, he was a jack of all, but a master of none. He declared himself a great actor, but did nothing to prove this. 
which we'll, yes. see, which we'll see, of course. Also, he went on to say he was the funniest person he ever met. I could see that. Someone like Withnail oh, is yeah. an incredibly difficult person to be around, but holy shit, for the time you're around him, man, you'd be laughing your ass off. <laughs> One of my favourite quotes, what Bruce Robbins has said about this Vivian character, he said, he was the greatest friend and my bitterest enemy. Mm. <laughs> I, I can see that. that, can see that, that. that, that friendship where it's, it's so abrasive. It's like the friendship, you're not even sure why you were friends with that person. Right. You're con- it's, it's so caustic, but there's something about them that you just admire. Some people just have it. They do, yeah. They just have that aura. They they can be a fuck up. They can be a mess. They just they just have a personality you want to be around. Now I'm not saying <laughs> with Nail has that. He no. has something. He has something. But I don't know what it is. <laughs> now cult films. One point one million. This was made for. Uh-huh. I think it only made one point seven million back. Didn't do great. No, at the box it was of... much a failure until it was released on video. One of those films that did not get a wide release. I think a lot of folk weren't expecting it to do well. I think honestly, Robinson himself was hesitant about its chances because he even said himself when he made it the film used a lot of colloquial language it was a morbid subject matter and what he called uncinematic voiceover (laughs) so he felt like it had so many ingredients that just wouldn't make it work do you not find that though when something subverts when it does away with certain tropes it becomes singular. Mm. It becomes something else. It's identifiable. It's a, it's a voice that you don't often hear. Mm. And I think that makes a difference. It's it just it doesn't just get lost in the tap. No. Someone's made this point about this film because it's it's 1987 this film. Yeah. Its legacy has endured years and years later and someone was interviewing Paul McCann who plays I right. and he was saying this film it's got no explosions. There's no love interests. There's no plot twists. A lot of characters, most of the characters, don't really learn anything. There's not lots of character development. There's very little plot at all. Why is this movie still so revered? Why is it still so successful all these years later? It's difficult <laughs> to put your finger on at times. That's what I'm saying. You don't always need those markers. You don't always have to be a formula. You can break the rules and create something that means something to people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what it is. When you latch on to something that diverts from the mainstream, diverts from the usual, the typical, Mm -hmm. throw any objective you want there, it becomes uh, something to latch on to because it's so different. And because we're talking the 60s here, because this movie is set in 1969, so we're talking the cusp of the decades, between the 60s and the 70s. And you think of the 60s, you think of it in a very idealised way. It was swinging London. It was things like England had won the World Cup. Everyone was very happy. There was a lot of optimism, a lot of movements going on at the time. But this, very end of the decade, we're talking about how that has gone past now, we're moving on, and it's this really kind of pessimistic viewpoint. I think that's the subversion you're talking about. Not showing the glitzy, glamorous London, but the dirty and degraded London. Well, that was the culture change. As you said, swing in London, the England winning World Cup 66, mostly that all took place. And there was a big shift from 66 to 69 because what people were experiencing in 66, you know, the the sexual revolution, Hmm. all these new liberalizations... Some people were pushing that too far, and it was starting to take a dark turn. Like, San Francisco is a good analogy for that. The Haight-Ashbury scene, how that became, you know, the peace and love, the flower power scene, the Mm. free love scene. But that started to darken as the stronger drugs took a hold. As, you know, where did all these young runaways who ended up 
searching for all this free love, what happened to them when they were ended up living in squalor. So the, the end of that decade was taking a darker turn, which is expressed in one of, and again, one of our collective favourites, Fear and in Las Vegas, Absolutely. the death of an era, so to speak. And I think that's what one of the big themes of this film is. Hmm. And I don't know what you took away with it, but this is the perfect place to put this into because the biggest takeaway from this film for me was the death of innocence yeah there was as i said it's no coincidence that it takes in 69 the end of an era exemplified by youth culture and these are approaching 30 in this film so they're on the tail end of youth culture and new ideas there's a character called danny in this yeah. and he specifically said and i think this is an applicable quote to what we're discussing he says they're selling hippie wigs and woolworths that that's a deep statement even though it's superficially funny and it's this death of an idea much in the way it's the death rattle of with nail in this film and marwood's ideation of artistic suffering and youth and it's killing off this great idea by commercializing like you say making the wigs as well right. danny says at one point also the 60s he calls it the greatest decade in the history of mankind and another point in line london is a city coming down for its trip exactly we made this same point when we talked about the ice storm another absolutely fantastic film that scene with toby Maguire at the party everyone's passed out he's the only one there the party is over 60s was a big party but what do you do afterwards even the austin powers movie said this when austin's unfrozen in the 90s and he looks back after the 60s like all oh, the 70s and the 80s it's just not a world he knew it's the great hangover to say exactly what do the hippies do after that because we went from the, you know, the idealism of the 60s and then you went into the 70s you had you know richard nixon coming in the vietnam mm. war things like this the me 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 generation everything they'd been working for everything that had seemed so good for such a brief period of time was suddenly over by the end of the decade that was it. And this is what they're reduced to. Now, let's contextualise our beautiful pontification. <laughs> now, do you want to tell everybody a quick synopsis of what this film actually is about? It's not plot-heavy, but let's let's get into the actual plot. I've got it labelled as plot, even though some would argue there aren't many. Plot well, in uh, brackets, <laughs> list. Plot in quote, about five, five yes. quotation marks. It centres on two struggling actors called With Nail and... He's referred to in the script and a part of the film as Marwood, right. but he's just known as I. No one says his name. Even in, in the, the credits of the film, he's I. Even the credits, he's and dot dot dot, 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 and I. The dot, dot, dots so, are yeah. Important. Their the ellipses are important, you see. So with Nell I, there are two struggling actors living in Camden in 1969. London. Yeah, in London, 1969. They're pretty much unemployable. Their careers are going very badly, live in this horrible, damp, squalid flat. Yes. They essentially get from one day to, the, day to the next by engaging in substance abuse. Lots and lots of drinking, whatever drugs they can get their hands on. They're living unprosperous lives, and they're kind of resigned to this fate. And then I suggests, why don't we leave the city? We'll go out into the country because Withnil's uncle Monty happens to own a house in the Cumbrian countryside. Right. So we'll go out there. We'll rejuvenate is the world. We'll leave this horrible squalor. We'll go to Penrith in Cumbria and we'll just go out there. The and Lake we'll, District. We'll rejuvenate, yes, the Lake District. And it'll all be lovely because, you know, lovely people out there. We've got lovely views, lots of fresh air. The it'll sheep. Be, it'll be great from the sheep everywhere. Uh, animals. Cows. Yeah. cows. <laughs> exactly. So it'll be different. It'll be something to help rejuvenate themselves because they're constantly ruminating on how they're feeling horrible. We hear this through Eyes narration and through Withnil's lamentations, yes. we'll say. So they decide to go out to the countryside, hoping it's going to be good for them. Spoilers. Not really. <laughs> Was it ever going to be good? Does a with nail ever survive in the country? No. He's a beautiful soliloquist. Yes. I don't know if he's a rambler. Let's be honest. <laughs> if he went out there without eye, how far would he get? He can't even peel a potato. <laughs> <laughs> and he, they forgot wellies. 
Yeah, they forget so the plastic Wellingtons. bags will have to do. To be fair, would they even have Wellingtons? Because when you look around the flat that they're living in, it's awful. Like, I'm surprised they can find anything in there. No, I think we've <laughs> took from your tone, your the way you're talking. I think we've took two different interpretations of this, Wayne. Hmm. If we're talking about themes and you're on about the squalor, you're seeing it as a point of misery. In a sense, I don't. Yes. I don't. No. It is a thing of pure beauty. Mm. And I don't say that lightly or facetiously <laughs> or to be a contrarian or to be like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, he's being contrarian. Mm-hmm. No, I actually think it's it's that beautiful time, that beautiful period in life. You're youthful. You've got ideas. You're idealistic. The next big role's around the corner. You're mm. waiting on that telephone call for something big to happen. Yes, you're flat squalor. Yes, you don't have much food. Yes, you're living in, you know, quote unquote, poverty <laughs> but the dream is alive the dream hasn't died do you think they have that attitude in this yes you think both of them do even i because the idea with i i is a very kind of downbeat paul character. yes very paul mccann he's just constantly ruminating he writes he doesn't write a diary he collects his thoughts and we hear them through a kind of omniscient narration yeah and he describes their life and he's describing the drug use and he's describing danny and what's happening with Withnail. and we see him in the morning he's out at a cafe, he's having breakfast, and he's just so despondent over everything that's happening. Well, do you, do you have a favourite between the two? I'm curious now. Uh, I'd have to be with Neil. I think just because of... You You love Richard E. Grant. I, look, I love Richard E. Grant, and Richard E. Grant loves with Neil. Richard E. Grant has said in many interviews, this is the only role he's ever done. He said he's been in show business 40 years. This is the only film he's ever done where he still remembers every line of dialogue. And he says pretty much every acting job he's ever gotten subsequent, because this was his first film, every acting job he got in one way or another because he did this film. Now, a lot of celebrities can seem jaded, yeah. self-obsessed. Richard E. Grant is one of those kind of, the ones you'd think, oh, cool, he'll be fun to hang around with. Mm-hmm. We've both watched this hotel TV <laughs> oh, show. Oh, yeah. And that's great as well. I love it. It's the char- there's a charisma. That's a lot of what Richard E. Grant brings to this part. He's kind of a hateable character in a lot of ways because he's very self-aggrandizing. He's very selfish. He's very self-important. Would you say he's almost like, he's a, he's a kind of a pompous private school boy bit very, of a twerp very much yeah he even says oh I went to grammar school I'm good looking why can't I get on television it's with with it's this very much outward anger towards everybody else because he's annoyed people aren't giving him parts because well he's fantastic he's theatrical he's very flamboyant I've heard him referred to as gloriously drunk which <laughs> I think is a very good way of putting gloriously it gloriously drunk that's that's a romanticization again of of substances exactly I'm and not actually, opposed to that if you, look, if you look at the flat yes I mean I've noted down that for example, it's absolutely filthy. I at one point notes that there's a tea bag growing in the kitchen. I love it. And, and there's potentially a rat. Yeah, a rat the size of a dog, Danny, Danny. Notes, Danny notes. Now, but- Danny, sorry to cut you off. Danny's character is a very identifiable character. Is that the same character that they would be used again in Wayne's World 2 as the roadie? I think it could be, yes. I'm sure that's the inspiration, because it's very much alike. He's the guy that's kind of lamenting on the end of the hippie movement. He's talking right. about London coming down from its trip and right. about this, if you're holding on to a balloon, at what point do you let go? Because that's what I guess it felt like for a lot of people. Like, the 60s couldn't possibly get any better, but the higher you go, the further you fall. And he's the one that, that makes a yeah. note of that. Because, like, let's be honest, he's a scumbag, slimy drug dealer. who <laughs> Your en- words. Yeah, who, <laughs> who ends up squatting in the flat and, like, takes their security checks or something like that, which he was going to cash in, maybe not. There's all money. Yeah, so he's a pretty lamentable character, but he has this very philosophical way of looking at it. Guy rolls a mean joint. Mm. Camberwell Carrot, I believe it is. But we're talking about this kind of gloriousness. You look in the flat, like you say, it's filthy, it's disgusting, but on the wall you see 
posters for movies like Modern Times and there's Gone with the Wind and there's all these great silent actors of all. It's like a kind of a yearning for a time past when ta- when things weren't so difficult as they are now. Maybe when things seemed a bit more glorious, like a longing for a heyday. No, I gave say. my perspective there when I said I don't think it's necessarily a downer. In many ways, it's the beauty of youth. Now, I don't think you're seeing a different side to that. What, what are you seeing? Well, what I was looking at is the kind of physical degradation they're living in and how they express it. I go, I, I at one point says, I feel dreadful. I feel really dreadful. And Withnail dismisses it with a, so do I, so does everybody. So it's like they are just part of a society that is coming down. Mm. I mean, we open the film with I sat in his chair, a whiter shade of pale is playing. Yeah. It's filmed kind of like a one man show, like he's yeah. just staggering about this. There's even an audience applause because it's a live version of the song. It's a cover version. Is yeah. it a cover version of the original? It is a cover version. It's it actually a cover version. Yeah. I didn't think it sounded like Yeah, Pro Call Harum yeah. does the original, but this is like a live, kind of jazzed up one. Yeah. Even look at things like their car, for example. They drive a Jag. How did they get the Jag? I'm not sure, but that's a desirable car. Jag is a luxury car manufacturer, but you look at the Jag. It's got a headlight missing. One of the wipers doesn't work, which comes into play later. It's all battered up. The skewering of a dream. Exactly. It's like it's and like I, you would dream of owning a car like that, but just not that which one. Is a, which is what the film is about. It's like, it's like, okay, you may attain the dream, you may not, but in the meantime, it's going to be very messy. Exactly. The, the road to paradise is paved very cobbly. <laughs> it, it is. This was something, actually, I never noticed the other times, just this time when I watched it. You look at the clothes Withnail wears most of the time. They're smart clothes. He wears a tie and he wears like a... A scarf, he's got a jacket on, they're all very nice clothes, but they're filthy and they're ragged. And he's just there going about not necking, he's necking glasses of wine in his To be flat. fair, I think it's probably because he wears the same nice pair of clothing the entire film. I think he does. I think he does. He looks, he got like a tweed jacket. I mean, at one point, they wear nicer stuff when they go to Monty's house, which right. is with Neil's uncle. But creepy most, dude. The creepy dude, but most of the time, yeah, he just looks ragged and filthy. Look, let's let's big up our culture for a little moment. Richard E. Grant, who may not be the most familiar to certain audiences, but a little let's give a little fact to Richard E. Grant. He was born in what was then Swaziland, yeah. Africa, due to his dad being the head of education for the British government administration. So he's not exactly coming from humble humble beginnings. He's got a good start to life, much like I'm assuming the Withnail character. I imagine he's drawing a lot of parallels there. He did work again with Bruce Robinson two years after this in How to Get Ahead in Advertisement. And more famously, more famously probably than even with Dale and I to an international audience, in 2018, he was in Can You Ever Forgive Me? Very lauded performance, very critically appraised performance, starring aside Melissa McCarthy. Yeah, he was Oscar nominated for that. Oscar nominated, exactly. And it's, it's, it's the film he noted, he says... As someone who's averse to alcohol or allergic to alcohol, can't drink it. He pretty much always gets passed in part, cast in parts where he's drinking because he drinks a lot. Is, that, in is, that he film. Al- is he kind of an alcoholic? And can you ever forgive me? Yeah, he drinks a lot. Yeah. He's pretty much always seen with a glass of wine, or with a glass of uh, scotch or whiskey or whatever. It Are was. we typecasting him? I think he, it's weird. He's typecast completely against himself. And Maybe it's like some self abuse. Maybe yeah, he just hates himself yeah. so much he just has to keep getting. To be fair, Withnail is a character he's still very strongly identified with. In fact, and here's an interesting fact for you: during the pandemic lockdown he started filming some skits on twitter called with nail and isolation which were essentially clips where he'd film himself saying lines from the movie like he'd be out in the field and there'd be a bull behind him you go he wants to get down there and have sex with those cows like little <laughs> clips and then he would laugh to himself it's obvious he still really yeah. enjoys and really cherishes this part and which goes to prove even celebrities were bored in lockdown <laughs> <laughs> exactly they had to find something to do yeah, didn't you, had they? To, you have to do something why not yeah. <laughs> why not you know mom, mimic your best film entertain i imagine here's one here's one. sorry would you say this is his best 
best film? Richard E. Grant's. It's your favourite film? Your favourite film of his? His favourite film of all the ones I've seen, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I would say so. He was in The Player briefly. Yes. The Altman film. Yeah, Fantastic was, yeah. film. When we talk about films that epitomise an actor or a director, whatever, this epitomises Richard E. Grant. He can't get away from this. But in a sense, I don't think he wants to. I think he loves this part so much. It's like, for example... James Woods, when he did Hercules, he did the voice of Hades. He loves that so much. He said he would do that part any time again for free. I feel like Richard E. Grant would do that. If he was called back to the part of Withnail, I think he would probably have done it. I I think so as well. And I think that's quite beautiful when somebody finds something they're so proud of and they, they, they identify with that piece of art so much. I'm not saying specifically to the character... Though I imagine, as a struggling actor, there was parallels for his own life. As Bruce Robinson, obviously this is autobiographical to some degree, I'm sure he's seeing. I'm sure he saw some of the struggles that Robinson also went through as an actor. Well, it was Paul McCann's first film as well, so you do get this sense of it's being made from a place of real experience. And And you have to think... This was Bruce Robinson's first directorial effort. Yeah. He even said he, at one point, he got all the cast and crew together before they were due to shoot, and he stood up and he openly says, I know bugger all about directing. So says, <laughs> yeah, so he says, I would be very happy if you gave me notes. For me, that's great. That shows a very humble attitude. That's not, I've never done this before, but I know how to do it. I've been in the film business. How he's willing to take notes and learn from people who have maybe been in the business longer than him. But he didn't mess about Bruce Robinson. Very tightly rehearsed. Rehearsed to the eighth degree, essentially no improv, bar maybe one scene, and filmed in 30 days. He didn't fuck around. That's very, very tight schedule. Imagine with a budget like that, you probably had to get it done in this kind of short span of time. But Paul McCann, who played I, Marwood, he comes from an acting family, all his brothers. I think there's about four other brothers, they're all (laughs) actors also. Scouser, famously, he is not from London, Mm -hmm. which caused him to be fired from this (laughs) film during rehearsals for three days due to him not being able to rid himself of the Scouse accent. Scouse accent's Liverpool for international (laughs) listeners. But he was rehired because Robertson was like, look, you are right for this role, please just stay. He does look right. He looks like one of those people who is eye is kind of constantly anxiety ridden. Any little thing happens to him, he looks terrified. He's got a very reddened look in his eyes. He just plays like physically plays the part so well. I think he delivers the lines great as well. He's kind of a perfect counterpoint to Withnail because he's a very insular character. Withnail is a very extroverted, extroverted character. He's constantly lashing out. Withnail uh, eyes always like I'm just gonna have to sit here. I'll write my thoughts out, kind of thing, kind of processing what he's going through. Weirdly, both of them actors, Paul McCann and Richard E. Grant, have both played Doctor Who. Yeah, That's Paul, weird. Paul McCann played it like once, didn't he? When you say Paul McCann, I th- I can name you a whole bunch of other Richard E. Grant movies. With Paul McCann... Yeah, he, he kind of sh- dropped off. He was in a film called... It was called Jippo, oh. which was, a, a, what's it called? I think a dog-me movie. Like, movies that are, have a very bare-bones script. They have oh, all what did he? Of, he was in one of those, yeah, he played like a xenophobic father, yeah. uh, like a builder or something like that. that but right. other than that, I couldn't name barely anything else I've seen Confession him in. time, Wayne. Yes. I know people are going to hate this statement. Go ahead. I've always hated Doctor Who. I've never been a Doctor Who fan either. Really? I can't say I hate it, I but I've just it. never I've never got into it. It's one of those series that as it goes on and on, I'm like, is this still it's one of those is this still going? I'm trying to think if I've ever saw a full episode. I, I don't think I have. Do you think I liked it as a kid? No, the only thing I think of is Exterminate, the Daleks line. Yeah. But outside of that, no, it's just never something that's appealed to just me. Just fucking exterminate them. <laughs> sorry, sorry to all you Doctor Who fans out there. But and we there are, is a lot of them. But yeah, there is a lot of them. But we I, are, do you always think it's like a kid's show? Yeah, a little it bit, always looks like a kid's show. A little bit too much, so no, we are not fans of Doctor Who. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> With NLI fans, are just not Doctor Who fans. But we need to talk about another character who is very central to this film, and that is Uncle Monty, played by the late Richard Griffith. 
Rest in peace, Richard Griffith. Very interesting career. Uh, speaks French in this movie, as well as he did in The History Boys. Oh. Do you think that was just in his contract Oh, I forgot point? he was in The History Boys. Although in this, I get the feeling he did it to seem like kind of a bit posher. Because, Pompous. Yeah, because he's a very eccentric character. He's wealthy, he's eccentric, he's... Very he, self-absorbed. He's self-absorbed. He feels like one of those people that is somewhat living in the past. He has a big, you know, big house, he's got a lovely car, a cat which he hates... Yeah. What's going on with his cat? He can't stand that thing. That's what you took away from this. <laughs> yeah, I was what... more taken he was had cauliflower in plant pots. <laughs> he did. In his house, in his living room. Yeah. Do you think even that's a kind of pretension? He's he refuses. He's not he's not interested at all in growing flowers. He's talking about vegetables. We say flowers are tarts, prostitutes for the bees. <laughs> and I deliberately rolled my R there because that's what he does. I, look, can a character be so despicable but yet so great? I hate him as a man. I mm. hate him as a as a person carved into three dimensions. Yes. But he's a great character. He is a great character. And he does have a great line. He has some great waffling in this. He says, I think the car is infinitely more fascinating than the geranium. <laughs> now, we'll get back to Monty. I just want to say that, as I said that sentence, it, it made me think, right? We covered, as our first episode this year, A Field in England. Yeah. And I think I said, or we collectively said, that that film exemplified dialogue-driven film. Yeah. The dialogue is to the eighth degree. It is so fantastic. The the interplay between characters, the lines written. And I think this film is doing much the same. The dialogue is key. The dialogue drives the film. The dialogue is really what this film is remembered for. And I think, you know, we're talking about Monty. Monty has some good lines. He does a lot of good lines. I would argue something that With Neil and I has the legacy it does for the same reason as something like The Big Lebowski, which you mentioned earlier, because of its quotability. I know, generally speaking, With Neil gets a lot of the best lines, but I think Monty gets a lot of uh, good ones as I well. Think so. and you say you hate him as a man. There could be a reason for that because we're talking about autobiographical elements. Yeah. Well, Bruce Robinson worked with, as you said earlier, Franco Zeffirelli. Director of Romeo and Juliet. The famous uh, Italian director who also directed, uh, I believe, a version of Hamlet as well, which had Mel Gibson Very in it. Shakespearean then. Very Shakespearean, yes. That, oh, I forgot. Was that the one with Mel Gibson? That was the one with Mel Gibson, yes. Oh, dear God. Uh, How, I bet them clashed. Paul Schofield as well. I hope he wasn't chasing around Mel Gibson. <laughs> well, Mel Gibson was the one who was intimidated. <laughs> Mel Gibson said that, well, it was actually working with Schofield. He said it's it was like being thrown in the ring with Mike Tyson, that intimidation really? factor. But Zeffirelli apparently was a very lecherous individual. Yep. Bruce Robinson has said a number of times that he actually came on to him a lot and he made a lot of inappropriate advances. And actually, one line, there's quite a few lines, but one line that stuck out to me, apparently this is a direct quote, which is where at one point Monty has a strong sexual interest in I. Yep. In fact, that's one of the reasons they got the yep. cottage, because Withnail said I is a homosexual. Obviously, Monty is kind of... Uh, yeah. repressed homosexual and he says to I at one point I mean to have you even if it must be burglary buggery but no uh, bur burglary even bu even if it must be burglary is what he said oh, no. as in actual theft so like, Zeffirelli wasn't even trying to hide that we can't say how true that is but there are a lot of elements again a lot of direct quotes that come from Zeffirelli that they worked in here and if you think about it this film set in 1969. Mm -hmm. Homosexuality was only decriminalised in England in 1967, two years beforehand. Uh -huh. So obviously that very much makes sense that he would have hidden this away because he would have been a criminal just a few years earlier. I think it goes beyond homosexuality with Monty. I think there's a little uh, pedophilia as well hinted at in this film. 
very much into that because what was he says? He says uh, he talks about the delights of a quote firm young carrot is what yes. he says. Yes, and I think <laughs> is that why he's grow, growing all the fucking veg? Because well, so he can have all of these things around his house. It probably is. There's a. Straight- I, I think I think it's a character who is so pompous. I think he's influenced by ancient Greece. You know the pedestry of ancient Greece, mm-hmm. and I think that's kind of what he's bringing into into this character. And I think was it was it with Nail or Marwood who says about this character Monty says yet another anecdote about Monty's sensitive crimes in a punt with a chap called Norman who had red hair and a book of poetry stained with the butter drips from crumpets aye that's a, was that aye it was aye that said that that's a great quote that was in his voiceover the thing with Monty is the way he talks all the time because when Monty joins them in this house in yeah. the countryside so much of the scenes are just kind of him speaking in these very elaborate this very flowery prose right. a lot of time it feels like he's just quoting Shakespeare and he's lamenting on the on the time period. At one point he says, he says, we live in an age of weather forecasters. He says, we're shat on by Tories, shoveled up by Labour. That's yep. stuck between yep. a rock and a hard place, an inescapable situation. So I think there are some real-life truths to what he says, but a lot of it, it just feels like pompous pontification. He plays it magnificently, though. He does. He brings this very... He adds a new dimension to a film, turns it into a three-hander rather than just a two-hander. And it's not a case of, oh, here's here's Uncle Monty. He's kind of spoiling the scenes. He elevates some of the scenes, I have to say. He's not necessarily needed 100% of the time. And I think they've paced it well enough that when he's included, it feels necessary rather than him just tagging along the whole time. He's brought back into the story at the right time because with Neil and I, they're out in the countryside. We talk about misery. They go to the countryside. It feels like they've traded one kind for the other. Dreadful weather. The place is got no food at all it's just constantly raining it's constantly cold it's just a miserable time so this whole idea of going out to the countryside to rejuvenate has essentially backfired on them and it's only really when monty comes along it gets better because he brings lots of booze of course but he brings food as well and he brings like some money so they can go and do something so i doesn't really want him around no. because of the whole advance do you blame him well no not no. at all but the thing is people say oh it's almost not a proper film no plot and stuff the absolute heart of a film is conflict and that's what monty brings into the film he brings the conflict because the relationship friendship between withnell and i kind of breaks down a bit when monty comes along because it's like driving a wedge between them do you think there's genuine love between withnell and i i suppose so like a reluctant kind of love maybe do you think so? I think with Withnail, it's almost more of a dependence. Because- I think so. That's, 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 good, that's a very good way to put it. Do you think, in a sense, I th- feels that he will outgrow Withnail and leave him behind? I think that's kind of what the ending is kind of gesturing mm. towards. It was like last week when we talked about Enid and Rebecca in Ghost World. It feels like you have that one friend who, as they age or as they grow up, one will kind of go the separate ways. It feels like I is more that kind of person. He's the one that seems more equipped to survive in everyday life. Like, he will he'll probably just get tired of Withnail because Withnail is a pretty selfish character. There's a scene where Jake, who's a poacher, who Withnail is annoyed, offended with how Withnail does, and it seems like he's breaking into the house. And Withnail says to I, offer him yourself. <laughs> he just says, right, he would rather have him killed than anything bad happen to him. What is Withnail's <laughs> obsession that I is some kind of homosexual? I, d- I don't he know. He seems to want to offer him to Monty, to the he, poacher. Because the idea is that Withnail told Monty that I was gay in order to secure the cottage. And I said, I says, I would never have wanted him, not with him in it. Because this was the whole idea, was to come away from this relaxing holiday. But he's just made it worse by inviting this into his house. Is there any chance that Withnail is projected onto I? 
could with Neil. He's flowery. He's exuberant. He's quite a bit of a dandy, would you say? Yeah, supposedly, yes. Is there any possibility that he may himself be homosexual? There's a there's a chance of that, yes. I don't know. It was just off the top. <laughs> I just wondered. If... It could be like what the way he dresses, the way he yeah, acts, for example. Because yeah. he is a flamboyant character. Very flamboyant. He when he delivers like monologues, anytime he's saying anything, he's mostly berating other people. Because what Withner will often do is he will berate people who have done better than him, and he will make excuses as to why they have. He's reading in the paper about some young actor who's got a really good role, but it's two pound fifty a tit and a fiver for his arse. <laughs> so it can never be someone getting a part. Over him because they're more talented. It can't be that. He's quite the spoiled rich boy, I think so. Another important scene, he's on the phone and he's calling his agent, I think it is, and he's been offered an understudy role. He is aghast at this. He's affronted it's at the idea. It's beneath him. It's beneath him, the idea of being an understudy. And then when he finds out about that, he says, oh, he wants to, me to understudy somebody in a play called The Seagull. So what does he do? He immediately goes on and says, oh, I hate Russian plays. I loathe those Russian plays. You can't see I's disappointment in this because it's a paid gig. You're an understudy, but you're still paid for your work. And they're living in somewhat squalorly situation. And... You can see in I his frustration with Neil, and I think this is part of I's transformation, part of his transcending with Neil's relationship. They were once in the same situation, but he knows he's different to with Neil. This will be with Neil. With Neil is the eternal Arthur Rimbaud. He's the <laughs> eternal Dionysian wine drinking frivolity guy, and. That's not going to change. I think that's with Nail through and through. With Nail will be that way to the end. Whereas that's not really I's character. I's going to be very more conventional. He's going to be have a very more wife, child, and a job life. And I don't think that's going to be the same with with Nail. More conventional, more routine. I think so. It feels I think like so. well, I will go on to other things. In fact, he does. With Nail has this disposition where his attitude, his general outlook on life, has almost confined him to this position where he'll either get the big gigs or he'll just dismiss everything else. So he will never be able to get that big break because he's not willing to compromise. Would you sense. call With Nail a bohemian? Yeah. Do you think he's quite a bohemian figure? Even from like the way he dresses and his general outlook on life, it does have that bohemian feeling about it. He almost feels, in a way, kind of out of place, like he belongs in a different time period. Interestingly, Luke, locations, they go to Penrith. Yeah. It's not actually filmed in Penrith. There are many shots in Cumbria, yeah. not Penrith specifically, mm. and a lot of it was in Buckinghamshire. The tea room, when they're in Penrith, is actually in Buckinghamshire. <laughs> the one with Miss Blennerhasset. Yeah. Do, 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 do you know the cottage they stay at in, quote-unquote, Penrith, not uh-huh. Penrith? Uh-huh. That was once bought by Kate Moss. Kate Moss owned that place. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the film. She says you bought the cottage. Oh, oh, oh right, oh, right. Um, Afterwards. Yeah. Uh, she was a child. Yeah, well, so what very was, young when What was, was I thinking there? I assume she did it up to look a bit nicer. <laughs> I have no idea that it, that it was it's interesting when they go into that cottage actually because with Monty you have a feeling of this character who lives in the past did you notice who the portraits were on either side of the fire George V and his wife Queen Mary of Tech Ooh. who would have been reigning more than 30 years before the film came out you get that a lot though in them rough cottages I'll do some work at some cottages Wayne and it's all old portraits and paintings. Do you get the feeling like it's been portrayed, this countryside, as like a part of the world that's kind of frozen in time? It's like people still living off the land. It's like people still clinging to these kind of older traditions. That kind of is the country though, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose It's very much different from the sea. And I think it's the contrast. We're moving from Camden. It's quite hip, or at least it is now, (laughs) compared to what it is now. It's that contrast between 
city life, country life, the expectation of country life, mm. the nice escape to the country. There's even a show in the UK, Escape to the Country, it's where it's all present is idyllic. And it's, it's not necessarily like that, is it? Well, that's the interesting thing, because being in the city, they think, you know, this is where it all happens. This is London. This is the beating heart of the world, the beating heart of the UK. This is where, you know, there was all the progress, etc. But they look at the countryside in this this kind of false image, this idea like, oh, we'll go outside, everything will be lovely and perfect. And they come to find that's not the right, that's not how it is at I all. I think that's I's attitude. Withnail just doesn't want to go at all, does he? No, no. Well, it's I's idea in the first yeah. place. And Withnail seems very against it. And he's angry pretty much the whole time. He's not really happy until, well, they go to the pub or till Monty turns up and just brings a whole load of drink with them. <laughs> so it's like they are stuck in London and then they move on and they are kind of stuck in the countryside. Well, a nice little thing <laughs> I found out about this film is their house in Cam and you know the rundown messy house yeah that was actually filmed in Notting Hill oh yes and it was completely set designed to look like Bruce Robinson's place in Camden from the 60s well there you go That's, that adds even more realism to yeah. it, did, it he, did, did he also have like a whole load of posters and things along the wall I imagine I, they would I'd assume have. so young actor Pic- pictures, of, pictures of all actors did he have a tea bag growing in his, in his kitchen potentially <laughs> I wonder if there was a Danny also Danny yeah, yeah. probably yes I like, think so. like some drug dealer it's who would just 60s. kind of hang yeah it would have made sense a drug dealer just kind of hanging it's, around it's, it's what they do goddamn oh. hippies <laughs> a rat the size of a dog in the, in the oven as well Hey, I've seen some newspaper headlines, Wayne. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of great quotes in this film, and I think you'll agree, one oh, of yeah. this movie's greatest strengths is how funny it is. There right. are so many hilarious lines. Right. There's so many lines that I used for such a long time. When Withnil is hung over at one point, he describes a headache as saying, I've got a bastard behind the eyes. And he says, I feel like a pig shat in my head. That's I a would, good one. That's a good I one. would call pretty much every headache from then for years a bastard behind the eyes. Bastard behind the eyes. I, still, a, I still do that sometimes, yeah. You, you still call it that now? <laughs> yeah. In fact, one of the most famous quotes from the film kind of very much exemplifies what they've done is, we've gone on holiday by mistake. That is a great line. <laughs> I think that's one of Bruce, Bruce Robinson's favourite lines of the film. And then obviously there's a famous, I demand to have some booze. Yes, that's... One of the best ones. We're not drunks. We are multi-millionaires. Things like this. Just because it's the film is so quotable. You can argue there's not much of a plot. You can argue there's not lots of conflict, lots of character development. But you cannot knock the writing of this film. I think that's one of the reasons its legacy has endured so well. Now you said you came to this as a student. Yes. And what is perennially famous with this film and with students is the drinking game. Yeah, oh now, God, if yeah. Nobody, if nobody has heard of the with... I'll, I'll, I've got the information here, Wayne. If nobody has heard of the with Nail and I drinking game, it entails matching the characters drink for drink on screen. And now if you're wondering, what is this? I have got the list. The concoction, Wayne. Now listen to this. <laughs> Go ahead. With Nail drinks roughly nine and a half glasses of red wine. Now keep in mind, you've got to keep up with them while this occurs. Mm. Nine and a half glass of red wine, half a pint of cider, one shot of lighter fluid. <laughs> okay, okay. That is substituted for vinegar or overproof rum. Mm. Their substitution. Vinegar right? if you want to be authentic. Right. <laughs> Two and a half shots of gin, six glasses of sherry, 13 drams of whiskey, and half a pint of ale. <laughs> now, has anybody completed this? I'm fairly sure they haven't, because there is a more conventional version of the drinking game where you simply do a shot or you drink a thing of beer yeah. or whatever every time Withnail drinks. Right. If you're going to move it to that next level and try and match this him is drink the official for drink, one. This is the official drinking official. game. Official. I think I read that's something like, I think it's like 60 units of alcohol, which it's... In an hour and 51 minutes. It's something, something like four times more than you're recommended to drink, I think, in a whole week. A week's 14, <laughs> a week's 14 units in the UK. In, in Spain, it's something stupid, like 30-something 
it's it's deadly. I've seen with the drinking game when you have the more paired down when yeah. you just match them, you do shot things. For shot. You'll also do like a shot every time with nail swears, for example. Yeah, you'll have a fun night, but you won't be on the floor. No, no. Whereas th- this one I just labelled, I think. <laughs> You may as well book your appointment at the hospital. I think if you're going to do this one, get your phone out, type 999, yeah. and as soon as you start to feel funny, hit call. I think so. I uh, think and when so. we mentioned before, if if you've not seen the film, we talk about lighter fluids, because there's a scene where Withan is like, oh, he says, we must have some booze. It's the only solution to this intense cold. And he tries, he goes to drink a mouthful of lighter fluid. That is our natural thing with the homeless, did you know? The, the, I have heard about that. Like, actually, mu- like mouthwash, anything that contains alcohol. Well, the idea is it was supposed to be full of water, but Bruce Robinson sub substituted that for vinegar so when with uh, Richard e. Grant does the shot of yeah, lighter fluid yeah. you can see on his face that was not planned I mean the vomiting and the laughing afterwards was but that wasn't planned I so- am sure Bruce Robinson <laughs> spent this entire production just trying to poison Richard E. Grant whether it was the champagne <laughs> the champagne and half a bottle of vodka to a man allergic to alcohol there were actually interesting some quotes that actually secured actors parts in this film with Richard E. Grant maybe this wasn't what got him in the interest first place, right. but this really nailed the role. When they're at the flat at the beginning, yes. and what I mentioned is there's something in the kitchen, and Richard E. Grant yells, FORK IT! That line was delivered so perfectly. That was exactly how Bruce Robinson wanted the line. Without even being prompted, that's what got him the role. Also, there's a police officer later on. He's not named, but they're driving back into London. And I like that. I mentioned earlier the symmetry. When they leave London, all along the Watchtowers playing one of Jimi Hendrix's signature tunes, when they come back to London, it's Voodoo Child. It's another Hendrix song. Another Hendrix song. I like that symmetry. They're leaving London to Hendrix. They're coming back to London See, as we Hendrix. love it. His mm-hmm. estate doesn't. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but did have... you know about them driving scenes? I've got a little thing for you. For this film, Robinson received A.E. Grant to direct this film. He put all that money back into filming those driving scenes. They cost 80 grand. All his directing fee, he put back in to <laughs> film them bits. There's not even that many driving sequences, really, like on the motorway. And I know it was mostly Bruce Robinson doing the driving, because Paul McCann, who drives, had just passed his driving test. And he was a bit wobbly on the motorways. In fact, the first time you see him drive the car, he actually, I think the second time, he actually stalls the car, and they left that in the film, I guess for the sake of authenticity. Little apropos moments. <laughs> exactly. A little appropriate moments that are meant to happen that elevate something. I do like that. Happy accidents. It. It's, yeah, it's a happy accident. And the police officer, one of the police Officers that stops him because Withnil takes the wheel, he doesn't have a license, and surprise, surprise, he's pissed. They get pulled over by the cops and they're demanding he get in the back of the police van. And this cop, it's so over the top, he goes, Get in the back of the van! That is this, great. This really screamy line. I love Again, that, line. that was exactly how Bruce Robinson wanted that line read. It, that was a great line. <laughs> it a great line. I, I like how it sets it up. It's almost the fascistic police officer. It is, yes. Because this film is very. Look, 87, this film. Yes. Set in 69. It feels so appropriately 60s and the attitude of the 60s. It's not like eight, It's not like 60s by way of 80s, even though mm. it is. There is pre- essentially no trace of the 80s in this film. I'd read articles where people actually did genuinely think, and I think they'd said to Paul McCann and Withnail and I, and uh, Richard E. Grant, they genuinely believed the film was filmed in the 60s. That's how good the period details were. As we were saying earlier in this podcast, how this film is based on an unproduced autobiographical novel by the director, Bruce Robinson. And we kind of we hinted that the end of that novel is different to the end of this film. Because in the end of the novel, completely different, when they return to London... And there is this scene when they're in the park, for example. At the end of that scene in the park, Withnail goes back to his flat and he kills himself. Mm-hmm. Now, here's an odd way of killing himself. Do you know how he kills himself in that? He 
pours a bottle of wine into the barrel of Monty's shotgun and then pulling the trigger as he drinks from it. To be fair, that does sound like a very withnil way to go out. <laughs> right, but that scene is really good in the park, in the actual film. There's yeah. a great soliloquy, and I know you love that scene. It is. It's He quotes, uh, it's the piece, What a piece of work is a man, which is a speech from Hamlet. At this point, I has gone off. He's got the lead. He thought he was going to get a supporting role, but he's got a lead in this play. He has to leave. So Withnell's on his own, and he delivers this very heartfelt, very impassioned soliloquy. He's at, uh, I think it's Regent's Park, yep. and there's a group of wolves there. It's a shame. That might be the best performance he ever gives, and there was no one around to hear it. And it works into something Monty says as well, because he's quoting Hamlet. Right. Earlier on, Monty says, in one of his Monty pontifications, he says, he says, it's the great tragedy of any actor's life when he says to himself, I will never ever play the Dane, as in Hamlet. So finally, with Nail, all these professional failures aside, he has, in a sense, got to play the Dane. He has got to play Hamlet. This was his big moment at the end. But as you said, no audience. But there's no audience. That's the tragedy of it. Exactly. It's a tragedy. He reads that out. He does this performance with a bottle, of course, and then he just wanders off. So the movie, it doesn't end on a dark note, more a kind of slightly ambiguous note. But that's why the, the unproduced novel was changed. The suicide of with Nail was deemed in Robinson's eyes too dark for the material too yeah. dark for the film but what it does what does happen we do see the transformation which we've alluded to in this film how I is essentially moving on from with Neil should we say he cuts his hair short he's got his 50s style hat on for example and he looks like he's off to a job he is off to a job and there is a transformation that with Neil doesn't have with Neil doesn't really have an arc I does Marwood does, in a sense. I mean, it's not really a film of pontificating or moralizing or any of those sorts of things, but Marwood does have a slight arc in the sense that he seems to have outgrown with Nail. For anybody who says, you know, the characters don't learn anything in the film, I right. think I does. I think the whole experience really taught him that he needs to move on with his life. And I think it's fortunate that he gets this part because he can move on from with Nail. He says, I will miss you with Neil. You get the sense he's not going to want to go back to him and no. hang out and live in his flat with him again or anything. I don't think they're going to see each other again. No, I don't think so. I think that's them parting ways. We don't know what's going to happen to with Neil afterwards. We don't know what's going to happen to I. It's left very ambiguous. But I think that's a better ending. I think him shooting himself, it does feel like it would be too much of a dark ending, too much of a tonal shift. I don't think that ending would have worked as well. Which is why I was saying metaphorically or allegorically, however you want to say it, this is why the setting of 69 is important. Of course, it's hearkening to Robinson's own youth or mm -hmm. 20s, but it's the death of it's a death of the innocence, as I was saying. This is where their youth ends and the professionalism begins. And I think that's what the end of this film is hearkening to, especially for I. This is him moving on. Mm. And it's moving to an uncertain future as well because we're not sure what's going to happen next. He just kind of wanders off into the park. Greatest decade in the history of mankind is coming to an end. I guess for a lot of people at the time, they did think that was like where humanity had peaked at that yeah. moment. Especially youth culture. Especially youth culture because after that, you get the me, me, me generation, yeah. the commercial generation who were selling wigs in stores now. Yeah. So it's like nothing more than a fad. I think so. I think so. And I think thematically the death of innocence plays a big part in it. And that's why I was saying, Wade, how this film in many ways is about beauty. Mm. Amongst the ugliness is about beauty because they have innocence. They have the dream. And I think Robinson also thinks that somewhat because one of his quotes of why he believes this is a continual cult success, he says, it touches on that time in our lives that is complete 
magnificent anarchy. And mm. I think that's what it is. There's an innocence in the misery. There's an innocence in the squalor, but it adds to something beautiful because mm. you have the dream. It makes me think of a line that Kathy said to Ed Wood in Ed Wood. She says, this is the time in your life when you're supposed to be struggling. Exactly. It's that time when you're young, when you can struggle, you can get those experiences by failings, by getting knocked back. That's how you can learn and you can move on. And this movie... I'm so happy that it's 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 had such an enduring legacy, even overseas, because Richard E. Grant says he was in France at one point, he was sat at a roadside, and a car drove by, and some people yelled, leant out the window and yelled, Scrubbers! Which is something he does in <laughs> the, the film. School girls. To the schoolgirls. Paul McCann was in Canada, and he says he has people coming up to him, all over the world, coming up to him saying, have you gone on holiday by mistake? <laughs> McCann says, I have that every time I travel. But, but let's say how far this film has travelled, because it's very, very... Very first screening was a disaster. It was terrible. Now listen to this. <laughs> Zero laughs throughout the entire film. Mm-hmm. Now, you might think these are miserable bastards <laughs> who just don't like a good time. But there is a reason we have to we have to say <laughs> the reason was, and Robinson did not notice this or find out this for a little while, but the cinema was full of German exchange students who were in the UK to learn English. I thought they would at least have laughed at some of the physical humour yeah. or something, or some of the funny situations they find themselves in, but imagine how heart-wrenching that would have been. You put Ooh. all of this time and energy into this film and it just bombs on its first The door. person who did set up that screening, Robinson wasn't happy, he fired them. That's how, that's how pissed he was. I would have been pissed. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> like, everyone would have been yeah. pissed. Like, if you play the drinking game, which yep. I would absolutely not advise. If you're going to play it at all, do the one where every time Withnail drinks, you do a drink as well. First of all, it'd be very expensive to do the big one. And Especially then, now, yeah. <laughs> you'd probably end up in hospital. But you'd have a good story. You would have, yeah. You would have a damn some, good story to tell. You'd be able if to, you could remember it. You could get a t-shirt saying, I survived the Withnail and I drinking game. <laughs> that would be that would be a feather in your cap. That would be an honor. Is that to be... Are you to be proud of that? Are you to be proud of that? Probably. Well, you can be proud of your liver. I I think so. (laughs) In life, I believe in the separation of church and state. In the body, I believe in the separation between liver and mind. (laughs) (laughs) That belongs on a t-shirt as well. Is that where you came across it? That was original. Oh, that was original. I just thought that right now. Well done, man. Right. We'll have that as our backdrop somewhere. So, coming back to this film, I think I last seen it in 2019, I believe, the last time. I love this movie. Absolutely adore it. I've loved it from the first moment I watched it. I don't know how many times to see it but I love it just as much every time I laugh just as hard every time what was it like for you watching this film again Rewatch. I think there's pro- I'm gonna random number I think it's about the fifth time I've seen it mm. and I think it there's not a single part of it that diminishes yeah. it is eternally great and that's rare in films because you can love a film one time you may like it as much the second time but after a while you think okay I think I'm out- outgrowing this I've seen this enough that it's just getting boring never gets boring Wayne it stays fantastic and in many ways as you were saying about your the soliloquy you love in many ways this is a soliloquy on beauty on messiness of youth it is a statement on youth it's a statement on the struggle the beauty of it and where we're going to end up we just don't know and that is what makes life interesting so that brings us to the end of with nail and i and with that that is 50 episodes in the can. We're very excited about what the next 50 episodes are going to bring. So with that, join us next week as we will discuss, dissect and deep dive all things film from the obscure to the mainstream.